You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. On today's show, we have some clips from the Boston Japan Film Festival. If you don't know, the Boston Japan Film Festival is a single-day event that connects New England to Japanese culture through cinema. The festival was held online this year with virtual film showings and discussions. There is a particular short documentary that we wanted to highlight called Nourishing Japan about Japan's 2005 food education law as it pertains to feeding young students. It was followed by a discussion with the director, Alexis Agaliano Sanborn, and cookbook writer Deborah Samuels. After, we have Ari interviewing research scientist and MIT professor Mercedes Balcells, where they talk about the research landscape in Spain. Please enjoy. Boston, Nihon Eigasai ni Yokoso! Welcome, everybody, to the 10th Boston Japan Film Festival. My name is Chris Pilkovich. Managing Director of MIT Japan Program. Now, please allow me to introduce you to Ms. Etsuko Yashiro, co-sponsor of today's event and the person who started the Boston Japan Film Festival 10 years ago in response to the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown in Fukushima. Etsuko-san, dozo! Hi everybody. So this year, the Boston Japan Film Festival is proud to be celebrating its 10th anniversary. Already 10th. So we are also pleased to announce that we are coordinating our presentation with the 9th annual Japan Festival Boston. So we began this unique festival with the idea that powerful imaginary and the narrative has the power to change the world for a better place. And over the past 10 years, we've had the chance to connect and bond with many dedicated people to create this wonderful celebration of film. While the world may always have problems to overcome, we hope to use the deep personal bonds with establish, uh, we've established to move towards an ever bright future. Thank you. And we look forward to your continued support of both the Boston Japan Film Festival and the Japan Festival Boston. So please enjoy the film and the discussion. Thank you. Welcome to Alexis and Debbie. Wow, <laughs> what a beautiful film. Um, I really felt the connection to food watching your film, Alexis. Now, before we start our conversation here, um, I would first like to briefly introduce the two of you to our audience. I'd like to introduce Alexis. So Miss Alexis Agliano Sanborn is an independent researcher, food advocate, nature enthusiast, and an award-winning artist, and the director and producer of the film we just watched, Nourishing Japan. And today, we are also joined by Miss Deborah Samuels, and she leads the program content and curriculum develop, development for Table for Two USA's Japanese-inspired food education program called Washoku Iku, Learn, Cook, Eat Japanese. 
She was a food writer for the Boston Globe for 17 years and has authored two cookbooks, My Japanese Table, you all must get one, and The Korean Table. Alexis and Debbie, both of you are not Japanese, right? But you too are avid promoters of Japanese cuisine and culture. Now, I want to know how did this journey begin and what sparked this love and passion within you? Maybe Alexis, you can start this this uh, question for us. So my journey began, I first became interested in Japanese culture when I was a teenager. A common story uh, to a lot of teenagers, I was interested in anime and manga at the beginning. But I like to say that the... Um, the the spark that kept the the coal burning through all these years uh, of passion for Japanese culture was really their approach to the culture of the four seasons, their seasonal aesthetics, and just how nature is really interwoven into so many aspects of, of their lives. And um, food is a product of nature. And so... Um, interweaving that um, and discovering Japanese food and how it flows through the seasons um, and Japanese agricultural practices have certainly um, kept me uh, interested and excited all these years later. Debbie, would you mind sharing us your story? Well, my story goes back a little bit further than Alexis's and um, it started in 1972 um, when I went on a study abroad program with Colgate University uh, to Japan at the age of 20. Um, but prior to that, that's just a little bit of uh, background. Um, actually, my husband, uh, then my boyfriend, uh, we grew up together in Long Island. Um, he was at Colgate and I was at Leslie College here in Boston. And he had the opportunity to go to Japan and we didn't want to be separated. So our parents let us marry in college. And um, but in order to go with the program, I had to study Japanese, which I I had the opportunity to do at um, Harvard University as an auditor. And um, it was really pivotal in terms of learning the language and feeling that you can be a part of society if you're going to live there. Um, from that point in 1972, I lived in Japan with my husband and subsequently with children for a total of 12 years over a period of 48, soon to be 49. So I've had the experience um, of going from blonde to gray and everything in between and uh, sending my kids to school in Japan, actually a first grade. Um, I certainly love Japanese food um, prior to that, but when my son went to first grade, I actually got to experience the Kyushoku um, uh, cafeteria where the eating in the classroom. And I was just so impressed with the quality of the food. And I also learned to make bento at that time. The attention to detail 
and the devotion to the quality of a meal, a lunch meal for a child that was five years old was staggering to this American mind. I became captivated with the way Japanese thought about preparing food, presenting food, the quality of the food. There was so much a part of it. And um, I think that sparked my lifelong intention and love of learning how to prepare and sort of absorb the values as well, because it's not just about the food, but it's about the culture of eating the food as well. Um, That is a very important part of the um, equation. Right. And I think, you know, Alexis, your film sort of highlights that part for the food education. Actually, one of our audience asked us, really makes me wish we grew up with food education and options like this in our public school growing up. So this is to you, you in a sense, um, what inspired researching this premise, Alexis? And also, did you have any interaction of the Kyushoku yourself that sort of is, you know, try to weave those passions? I had been to Japan several times through as a foreign exchange student. I'd studied abroad in college, but after college, I was a participant on the JET program, which stands for Japan Exchange Teaching. And this is a program run through the Japanese government where you go teach um, English in high schools all around Japan. And the majority of them are rural high schools. It's, It's not that common to get placed in a big city. And on my time there, uh, I experienced basically a a very similar thing as to what you saw in the film. School gardens, school lunch prepared fresh every day, children being a part of serving and cleaning up, and just so many other things that are really interwoven into the culture of gratitude and appreciation in school lunch. It made me reflect on my own experience here in the United States and my own experience with um, school lunch, which was pretty minimal. Um, I was a brown, I brought my own lunch, my mom packed my own lunch. And it really um, allowed me to reflect on our relationship with food, our relationship with community, and these types of social services. I decided to make the film, there were several reasons. But the first reason was back, you know, around maybe 10 years ago or so, um, Kyushoku and school lunch in Japan just wasn't as well known, I think, as it is today. And so when I was talking to people about it, especially people who didn't have uh, a background or experience with Japan, I would often get these kind of blank stares. It, It was very difficult to explain what I had seen, what I had experienced myself. And I thought that really, I have to show this. Uh, There has to be some way to show this. And over the course of years thinking about the idea and refining the idea, I came to realize it wasn't just about showing the children, but helping to reveal how this is even possible in the first place. And that is where um, the food education law, or there's another law, the School Lunch Act, and just the entire, uh, an entire committed population of people in local communities who help to make this a reality every day. So that was um, another one of the themes that over the course of creating this film, I really wanted to highlight. And Debbie, you had two sons, right, who went to Japanese schools, and they've then came back to the U.S. Do you remember what your sons said about their experience versus the experience back in the U.S. 
with school lunches? Actually, when I sent my son to school in Japan with a lunch, I sent him with a brown paper bag and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and cookie and, you know, grapes and As you've heard before, he came home crying that his lunch wasn't cute. He got it pretty quickly. He did not want to be any different than anybody else. And so that's part of the reason why I learned to make obento. I mean, in first grade, kids are eating kyushoku. And the really good part about that is that everybody's eating the same thing. It was originally a leveler for nutrition, you know, and um, making sure that everybody got the same, the same thing. Obento can be a little bit more competitive um, with that. But um, when they came back to the United States, I continued making their lunches into high school because they really liked the idea of something handmade and homemade. And they appreciated that. It wasn't bento. But it was kind of the same concept where I actually made an, an effort was made to, um, to make something look good so that they would want to eat it. So it's really stuck with them. It, um, I would say it made a huge impression, not just only on what they were eating, but my son started to notice the dishes that he was eating the food in and commenting on it. I, I feel like when they're very young and I saw how Japanese children absorb the, the aesthetics of their country. My kids had the chance to do that, too. And I was as well. Wow. Aren't they lucky? Right. They had this experience and have someone like you to kind of continue it on throughout their high school. Now, I know that, you know, watching your film, Alexis, too, and sort of talking about this school lunch, do you think, you know, and comparing it to the American lunches that our children have? And again, you know, there's a new wave and depending on where you live, people have different concepts and there's some chefs that are stepping up to show variety, but what are your thoughts? And this is also from one of our audience. Um, what are your thoughts on the possibility of not necessarily the washoku iku that you are sort of spreading in, you know, both of you were involved with that, a shoku iku in American public school? So I think it's already beginning to exist and exists in a lot of places throughout the United States. Um, it looks a bit different. It's generally through grassroots organizations and nonprofits that are helping to create an American version of food education. But, you know, the, the types of things that um, students do are very similar, you know, growing food in a garden, um, understanding the basics of what a healthy meal is. Um, There's certain infrastructural elements that exist in Japan that might be a bit harder to overcome here. A lot of schools, you know, the, the cafeteria is where eating takes place. And I think that there's a lot of benefits of eating in a classroom and, and making lunchtime part of the curriculum, not just a, you know, a, a time to go crazy, but a time to mindfully be aware of what you're eating. But at the same time, um, you know, I think that there are other things that do not require um, as, as you know, s- such a structural upheaval that um, can be done through after school activities and just creating in your local community, um, saying that food and food education is a priority. And I think that it will help to lift up communities when um, 
when one person is do doing it, it can really inspire other people. And that's um, what's happening in Japan and, and what, ca what can and is happening here in the United States in its own way. Well, kansha, kansha, yama, yama, kansha to both of you, Alexis and Debbie, for joining me in this conversation and sharing your love and your passion for Japanese culture, cuisine. for joining us tonight. Hey, Professor Mercedes Balsas, thank you for being here and for joining us on the Misty Radio Show. So uh, I just wanted to start by un by understanding a little bit more about the um, the research landscape in Spain. I think you know, I think it's fairly well known in many other countries in Europe. But I'd like to know more about what the landscape is like in Spain and sort of what are some of the leading fields and focus areas that researchers there have. Uh, thank you for the opportunity first for having me here. I'm very happy always to talk about my country, my program in MIT, and, and the work we have been doing trying to establish bleaches with them. So the research landscape in Spain uh, has evolved dramatically in the last two decades since I left. I left Spain in ooh, more than two decades, I'm growing old, in 96 to do my PhD in Germany, but I was still in Europe. So I came to MIT in 99, and it, it has evolved tremendously. It occurs in universities and research centers. And uh, also there is a network of, uh, it's called Consejo Superior de Investigaciones Científicas, CSIC, which is the, I don't know the, the exact translation, but it's the Research Council of Spain and has big research institutes. So it occurs in those places. It's, I said it changed dramatically because uh, it was in the 2000, I would say, at the beginning of the century. Uh, that there was a big investment for infrastructure, for talent. I saw, I remember at that point, uh, 2003, 2004, uh, a lot of my friends who had been going abroad to do their PhDs or postdocs started going back to Spain. There was a, an influx because they built this amazing infrastructure, uh, mainly in the, I would say in the main cities. I am from Barcelona, so in Barcelona, definitely. Uh, uh, Centra de Recerca Biomedica, uh, the, the main universities in uh, University of Barcelona, uh, UPC, they build their research centers, their scientific parks, uh, biomedical research centers. So it was uh, critical. And in Madrid, the same. You have the CENIO, CENIC, which is stands for, I'm, I'm, I'm slow, I'm, I translate, it's difficult eh, in my head, is <laughs> the National Center for Cardiovascular Research or for Oncology Research. Same happened in the North, in the Basque country, tremendous investment and tremendous talent there. Uh, already the talent at the state and never but also talent that was uh, very, at that point, international and, and had done, you know, different phases through either the Erasmus uh, exchange had been in Europe or through PhDs exchanges, uh, a lot like me. I, I was very fortunate to have a fellowship from La Caixa Foundation and be able to do my PhD in Germany. Um, so a lot of people very well educated. There is a solid education system. And so the pipeline of talent was there. As, you know, I always explain as a curiosity that there is a lot of MIT professors. I think I was told that the, after US and UK citizenship, uh, the, the, the main citizenship of faculty in MIT is Spanish. So those are my colleagues and collaborators who were educated in, in the universities in Spain. So research occurs there. Uh, there was, a, as I said, big investment in talent capture and 
in infrastructure. And that was about 15 years ago, I would say. I, I don't want to paint a, you know, a, a garden of roses uh, because it will be unrealistic. Uh, the, that, imbe- that investment, it was public investment. It is, it's difficult to sustain. We suffered an economic crisis like everybody else, but it hit us very hard. And I always saw Spain in the same of signs, like a, like a seed with a small plant that is growing, you know? There was a lot of, uh, of scary moments to say, is this small plant that is growing going to survive? And it did survive because Spanish scientists are my personal heroes, you know, resilience, resourceful, creative, hardworking. But uh, there is, we always, when you see the statistics, we always fell behind. And it's not in scientific production. It's more on the part of translation into uh, business, you know, and the impact of, uh, the socioeconomic impact of business. And also uh, the investment in science per se. You know, I, I can give you an example. I, I am very happy to have a grant by the Spanish Minister of Economy. Uh, and this grant was written by five, six other professors and scientists. And the total amount of this grant is um, per year is about 40,000 euros, which to the dollar is, I think, today exchange perhaps $75,000. So you can imagine that with that amount of funding to support five people's laboratories, uh, you get where you get. You know, you cannot go uh, to Mars with funding to go to the moon. You may land in a star. And I, that's why I'm so, always so optimistic and so positive because we really stretch that dollar to the maximum. Uh, publications are published, patents are written. I see we are in good track, but the investment needs to be there. And I don't want this to be only, um, I always say, I don't think it's the public investment is important, you know, the taxpayer money, but also investment from uh, the companies. I work at MIT and I have had a lot of sponsored projects with local companies and multinational companies. And I think that's where we're still lagging behind. So there is always room to improvement. Yeah. So you had, you had mentioned... Uh a number of leading research groups around sort of the fields of biomedical science, biomedical engineering. And I know that's your field as well. Also, I'd imagine that's kind of an expensive field to do research in um, with the need for all the laboratory equipment and the space that you need. Is that, is that really where you think the, the Spanish research ecosystem focuses on sort of the bio biomedical or does it, is, does it go into other areas as well? No. Like, in climate science or computer science or anything related to that? Um, Ari, you are totally right. My field is biomedical engineering, so I'm always <laughs> biased towards that. Yeah. Uh, it's not only that. Okay. Um, I have to say that uh, there is, but also the biomedical, it is one of the top, I would say, one of the top in my country because not only uh, the, the scientific production, but also a solid network of big hospitals. You know, uh, again, the public hospital system in Spain is wonderful. So if you have good scientists and good hospitals, that you know, and some gas, and when I say gas, uh, dollars, uh, in that case, euros, this is a fertile. So yes, biomedical is very strong, but other areas are also very strong. Computational, uh, clean energy, and uh, um, Spain is one of the first countries in clean energy, and this is only possible for all the engineers working in environmental and clean energy. So in terms of the the challenges that sort of the Spanish research ecosystem faces, how do you think research, international research collaborations can plug some of those gaps. What do you think those opportunities are? 
Yeah, uh, I think international collaboration, and I, I am a big believer that not one person, not one lab, and not one place can do everything because we are better working together because we have problems that perhaps mm, we don't have the solution, but mm, the talent can be elsewhere. Talent is everywhere. Therefore, getting together the best brains across the Atlantic in this case is the recipe for success. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. So you need to build on the strengths and fill those gaps, you know. Um, and there are many, many, I have been fortunate to be witnessing the MIT Spain program since its inception. And you can see that, uh, you would think, you know, a lot of people tell me, oh, you are in MIT, you have it everything. No, we don't have everything, you know. Uh, we have a professor, Ignacio Perez Arriaga, you know, I, I hate to single out one person because then, you know, I'm going to get, uh, people are going to get mad. I give you many more who is from a, a university in Madrid and he identified that there is a class that MIT doesn't know and an expertise in storage of energy that uh, MIT didn't have. And he proposed that. So we see always good in both sides. And I think it's about the complementarity and about bringing people together and exchange uh, those people that are more flexible, which namely are the students, the students, the postdocs, those are the, the jewels of the crown, the ones that make things happen. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I since I run the Africa program at MISTI, oftentimes I'll be reaching out to different groups to talk about possible collaborations. And there's this attitude of what could we possibly offer you? And I have to go and tell them, actually, you have a lot to offer. Some For some reason, you just think that you don't. And it, it, it like opens Pandora's box under this whole deep dive in, into this topic. Let, let me give you another example. Yeah. Uh, in Spain, for example, in, they have unified health record systems. So you could go in some region like Catalonia or the Basque country and have a whole population with unified, standardized health records. This is a goldmine. Well, that's like an important point. And so let's talk about the specific Spanish seed funds for a minute. So MISTI has a program where faculty at foreign universities and faculty at MIT can co-apply for a research grant. It's called the Global Seed Fund. And I know that you were instrumental in setting these up with the Spanish program. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those seed funds that you've established and some, some of the research that's come out of them. It was not easy to convince anybody, you know, that will think that it will be a good idea. The first sponsor some years ago was very unlikely, was the Barcelona Chamber of Commerce. And you would say, why a Chamber of Commerce would support uh, faculty collaboration? Well, because they wanted talent exchange and to internationalize the companies in Barcelona area with good, com with good talent without having to move the companies. And what is the best idea that to have MIT Spain and a seed fund to educate the next generation of Spanish leaders, you know, uh, hand by hand by MIT. So that was um, uh, at the beginning of the program when we funded it back in 96. Now in the current uh, year, uh, we have three uh, seed funds, supporters or sponsors. Uh, one is La Casha Foundation. The other is Inditex. And the other is uh, Politecnica de Madrid, the university. La Casha Foundation sponsors collaboration between Spanish and Portuguese faculty and researchers, so you can be in a research center, and their counterparts in MIT. And in buckets, one, health, the other, energy, and the other, trying uh, initiative to narrow the socioeconomic gap. The second one is uh, with Inditex, the big uh, giant, uh, fashion giant. They were uh, very interesting uh, in 
research project, again, research collaboration from everywhere in Spain with everywhere, uh, all across campus, MIT. But for them, it was very important environmental cues. You know, we know fashion, you know, has fashion industry, textile energy, uh, has the potential to, and in the history, has the potential to damage the environment, you know. Uh, so they are very interested in minimizing that by research collaboration in the field of materials, how you recycle materials. It's not obvious to recycle a hybrid material that has, you know, natural, so for example, cotton and a polyester. It's not a simple problem. Uh, environmental impact of the whole logistics, you know, thousands of big trucks, you know, crowding spaces and producing, you know, traffic congestion and environmental impact. So for them, their seed fund is try to find ways to minimize the damage on the environment that the textile industry has. So that's the Inditex seed fund. And the third one is, is, is the smallest one, but it's with the University Universidad Politécnica de Madrid that they decided to stimulate research all areas of research, but between faculty and researchers from Politecnico de Madrid and MIT. Um, so it's in a way a bilateral collaboration between the two institutions. The start of this collaboration is probably rooted that some of the faculty from MIT that I mentioned before that are from Spain graduated from Politecnico de Madrid. And this university wanted to continue you know, uh, the collaboration, the relationship with their alum and foster interchange between research groups. So that's the third uh, seed fund. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Ya le